Hi guys, my name is Yassi and this is The Upsides. This podcast brings you mental health awareness as well as first-hand experiences with mental illnesses. It was started about a year ago with the hope of shining a positive light about mental health and to end the stigma behind it. It's going to be a year since I decided to start it and I'm grateful for everyone who was brave enough to share their story on the podcast. It really helped others relate to what they were going through. I am looking forward to providing more value in the mental health community in 2019 and wish everyone happy holidays. The following is an interview with Dr. Jose Alvarez, a psychiatrist. And I would like to say that I feel like he's like a new breed of psychiatrist. He really takes his time with his patients. It's not just about diagnosing and medicating. And now he's taking his time to provide us with more education on mental health. And I'm extremely grateful for that. So I hope you guys take a lot of information from what he has to say. And again, if you have any questions whatsoever, you can always send them my way to theupsidesfm at gmail.com. I hope you guys enjoy this interview. Hi guys, my name is Yessi and this is The Upsides. I am here with Dr. Jose Alvarez, who is a psychiatrist and also my boss. Hey. Hey. Um, So we've been talking about this for over a year, about him being on the podcast. And finally, you know, it's December, so we had to make it happen. Um, He's going to answer some questions that some people had relating to psychiatry, um, because there is a lot of stigma behind it, um, behind seeing a psychiatrist and being on psychotropic medications. And so, first, he's going to tell us a little bit about himself. So, what made you choose psychiatry? What made me choose psychiatry? Well, I think psychiatry chose me. Um, I really never crossed my mind that I would pick psychiatry as a specialty, although I worked in mental health for a few years. I really believed that I was going to be a primary care physician. However, um, when I was a medical student, I kind of started leaning towards psychiatry. And when I had my first interview before going into residency, one of the uh, program directors in a family medicine program told me that my background and everything about me suggested that I would be a better psychiatrist than probably a primary care physician. So... After some uh, soul searching and, you know, really thinking about the idea, I decided to apply. And then I, I, for some reason, I did better in interviews in the psychiatry programs than the family medicine and internal medicine programs. And I was given, um, you know, a pre-match, which is a contract before the actual um, selection uh, process goes through. Um, it's, it's very rare and it's very, you know, I, I was really lucky. So basically several months later, I already knew where I was going and, you know, I guess it was meant to be. So. When you say that you had, they said you had like more experience in the mental health field, that is because that's when you were doing social work, correct? I was working as a social worker. Um, I started in the medical field side of the hospital and they transferred me to the mental health side of the hospital and for some reason I did better there. I kind of found myself gravitating towards the psychiatric patients 
I felt more like a sense of purpose when I was working in mental health um, to the point where I thought, well, maybe I should consider, you know, getting to graduate school a little further, getting a PhD or PsyD. When I talked to the counselor, the head of the psychology department at the university, he told me that it, it seemed, based on our conversation, that I would do better as a psychiatrist and not as a psychologist because I like the science part of it as well. So I kind of disregarded that and uh, pursued my medical career. I even I totally forgot about that conversation. Kept thinking that I wanted to be a primary care physician, and I guess, you, you know... came back to it. I came back to it, most definitely. Um, what would you say is the hardest part of your job? Well, as you probably know, there are several things that are extremely hard about what we do on a daily basis. But I think that the most difficult part of what I do is having to find some sort of comforting, um, you know, statement, um, something that that person can live with that would make them feel that there is hope and that they're going to get better. Um, regardless of, you know, what we do and what they're going through. Um, as you probably know, we deal with people that are, you know, in terminally ill, can you know, diseases. Uh, we deal with people that are going through some serious um, financial um, and other psychosocial stressors. So it's really difficult to kind of... Um, inspire these people into, you know, into believe that there is hope and there's, you know, light at the end of the tunnel. So, um, so I, I think that that's the most difficult part, the most challenging part. And, you know, we try to do the best that we can. How do you feel about the stigma behind psychiatrists and medications? Well, I think that it's changing. I think that psychiatry has come a long way as a specialty um, now we're sort of considered a neuroscience because we're no longer treating the symptoms, we're treating the causes of what causes the mood dysregulation, what causes the neurobiology that we see the patient, you know, uh, you know, the patients that we see on a daily basis. So right now we have so many things at our disposal that helps us come up with a better diagnosis, a better treatment. As you know, we have genetic testing, we worry always about medical conditions that could be causing the psychiatric manifestations. So as a science, we have come a long way and we use that to the patient's advantage and to my advantage in order to, um, you know, come up with the best treatment for that particular patient, for the particular condition that they're experiencing. And that has helped in, you know, the efficacy of the medications uh, come up with, you know, better, you know, results, um, you know, faster results, and obviously cutting the stigma about, you know, taking medications and what it means to the person, what it means to be labeled with some, you know, diagnosis. Um, I personally believe, and that is a question that I get asked, you know, very commonly, what was my diagnosis? And I, 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 I'm very hesitant and reluctant to answer that question because the question is, I have something in mind, I have a working diagnosis, but the treatment will not change regardless of whether you're bipolar or dealing with any 
sort of more stabilization, mood deregulation that might be causing the mood dysregulation. So I, I basically tend to say we're dealing with mood dysregulation, we're going to put you on a mood stabilizer and we'll, we'll see what happens. If we're dealing with depression and anxiety, we'll use uh, an antidepressant. So it, it, we try to break that stigma and making the person feel comfortable that there's really no difference between diabetes, hypertension, and depression. You know, they're all medical chronic conditions that are treatable and our goal is to make them feel better. I think that sometimes as a patient, you want to know what you have to kind of use it as a crutch. Like, oh, I have this. So that's why, you know, I am the way that I am. Well, but then it depends what you want to know. And obviously, as educated, you know, individuals, we want to know and we want to, we want to have insight into our, you know, our condition and, and what's the prognosis and the treatment and whatnot. That's why I take my time, <clears throat> as you know, a lengthy, uh, you know, a uh, length to kind of explain to the person what we're dealing with, what to expect from it and what the treatment might be. So, and, and I think that gives them a sense of security and relaxation and the fact that there's really nothing wrong with suffering from mental illness, that now more than ever we have more treatments at our disposal that have better efficacy, and having an understanding, whatever basic understanding of the condition and what to expect and what the treatment is, gives them some sense of, you know, security and and it makes them feel at ease. So I think that the more that you know about the condition, the, the, the better the outcome is going to be. And I think that the more informed you are, the better it is. But you still don't like to tell them their diagnosis. Well, I, I do. It's just that it, it depends what I feel that... It's necessary like, to it's, know yeah. on a basis. Sometimes you don't know. You do know that you're dealing with... <clears throat> Let's say, for lack of a better example, you're dealing with someone who's coming with mood swings and and is dealing with, you know, feeling okay one day and not so okay the next day. And people start suggesting, oh, you look bipolar. Well, bipolar disorder and mood dysregulation per se is multifactorial. So we have to see whether the person has genetic predisposition for the condition the person has gone through trauma that has triggered <clears throat> that person to develop personality disorders that might mimic some mood dysregulation or some something that will resemble uh, bipolar disorder. Some people that have personality disorders might look bipolar, but they really are not truly bipolar. However, the treatment won't change. Those people that look bipolar and might suffer from a personality disorder that might like, make them look like they are bipolar, they benefit a great deal from mood stabilization and the treatment doesn't change. So mm -hmm. that's why I don't like to, I don't like personally to say, oh, you're bipolar and manic type, you know, or hypomanic or type two, because the, the treatment does not change. Mm -hmm. I basically like to use the term mood dysregulation and the fact that they might benefit from uh, mood stabilization and I take it from there. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of people that use marijuana for, you know, in cases of their anxiety or CBD oils. What can you say 
regarding that and then opposed to just using psychotropic medications? Because some people are opposed psychotropic <clears throat> medications but are for marijuana because it's natural. Well, it, <laughs> um, like any drug, um, there has to be... Um, there has to be, uh, there are consequences to when we cross uh, the thin line. Same as, you know, with alcohol, cigarettes, uh, any type of drug. So cannabinoid oils um, tend to have a promising future when it comes to helping with anxiety, depression, and even mood dysregulation. Mood dysregulation comes with restlessness that is perceived sometimes as anxiety, but it's instead your mood fluctuating, going you know up and down. So anything that has a calming effect um, will benefit those patients. And obviously, I never say, oh, I'm against it, um, because I have seen and even studies have shown that patients benefit from it. Even the patients that, that suffer from cancer, that develop you know panic attacks and depression and whatnot. However, like any drug, so the actual marijuana, the one that people smoke, use a different cannabinoid receptor than the, um, you know, cannabinoid oils. So the thing is that obviously anything that makes the body feel better, you're going to want more of it. And that's when it becomes an addiction and dependence when people are not able to uh, draw the line. So as in any drug, I always caution the patient on be more, you know, you know, try to keep it low because obviously it interferes with other things if they're receiving some sort of, you know, cancer treatment or anything like that. And it obviously can, de- can uh, trigger other problems. There is very well-documented studies now that suggest that there might be um, a schizophrenia triggered by, you know, cannabis use if there is a genetic predisposition. It's not just that um, Anyone. You know, cannabis can you know, cause for you to have a schizophrenia, but if in a genetically predisposed patient can trigger psychosis, it can actually awake those dormant genes uh, because it's a drug and it's, you know, it works centrally in your brain. So um, there is first, you know... Um, um, psychotic breaks of you know teenage uh, boys and girls who develop schizophrenia because they were genetically predisposed, not because you know the mm-hmm. marijuana doesn't affect was the everyone cause. the same. Absolutely, but my my suggestion is to obviously uh, use it with caution. You know, mm-hmm. and what other alternatives? Are there for psychotropic medications, like someone who does not want to take? Is it necessary to treat? uh, Obviously, it depends what we're dealing with and to the degree of what we're dealing with. Um, Obviously, we try to and we encourage the patients to seek um, therapy first, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, The studies show that therapy and medications are equally effective in under certain circumstances. Um, obviously, we try to encourage the patient to exercise and to do certain lifestyle changes that will help with the anxiety, the depression, and anything else that we're dealing with. But when we're dealing with complex neurobiologies, as of schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or persons who are genetically predisposed to depression and anxiety, therapy alone is not going to 
be you know sufficient. Um, we do know that most patients benefit from both equally, but if the person has a strong genetic predisposition, therapy will help, obviously to help with the anxiety-provoking thoughts, uh, intrusive thoughts, um, self-esteem, whatever it is that is contributing for the condition to get worse. But so in, in most instances, and I will say freely, over 50% of the times, therapy is not enough. Um, and obviously, we're working on the stigma of taking, you know, psychotropic medications. Mm -hmm. They are much better now. They, you know, the efficacy is, is higher. Um, as you know, I, I am against medication. I try to keep it as simple as possible. Um, we're not always successful, um, but I, I am not, I don't prescribe medications, you know, just easily like that. I, I understand. I don't like to take medications myself. So when I see someone hesitant, I always encourage them to try other things before we explore, you know, the choices that will be better for them. Um, so you you mentioned the genetic dis the um, sorry predisposition yeah predisposition mm -hmm. to disorders. So my question would be, like, do people develop these disorders later in life, or is it something that's always there? For instance, someone with bipolar disorder, you know, they're when they're children, are they still displaying those? I mean, it's hard to diagnose children because so in the lack of genetic predisposition, so. We get a lot of patients that say, oh, no, this does not run in our family. So you really have to look back and look at what kind of life these people had, uh, what kind of stressors they were exposed to, what kind of traumatic events they were exposed to. Um, and those traumatic events, those stressors that were exposed to can trigger depression, anxiety, or personality traits that might, like, might make them look bipolar, um, or a combination of depression and personality disorders that in between the two might make the person look bipolar. That doesn't mean that they suffer from bipolar disorder, but the instability in their mood and in their personality, along with the way they think and many, you know, many things that contribute to it, the person needs to be treated because the reality is that will benefit from a move stabilizer, whether they're bipolar or not. You do know that we see patients that have gone through a heck of, you know, mm -hmm. several things in their lives, and there's just some people that, for whatever reason, they continue to struggle, and they continue to, you know, experience trauma and difficulties and hardships in life. Those conditions, for these type of people, they become chronic, you know. They don't seem to get a break in life, uh, or, they have, or they work in a stressful jobs, or they suffer from, you know, other medical conditions that make life, you know, dysfunctional, uh, or, you know, poverty, or anything like that. Those things, I mean, and psychiatry is probably one of the most multifactorial, you know, uh, specialties in, in medicine, because psychosocial issues play a huge component. Mm -hmm. So those things are not treated by medication, although some patients, you know, think that believe that they, <laughs> they, they, you know, they do. Um, and you do know that we struggle with that daily. Um, so 
we get in one end people that do not want to take medications and they truly need it and we get people that want to take medications for just about anything that you know they mention to you so you get both spectrums of, of the situation um, but psychiatry is multifactorial you have to take so many things into consideration when you're developing it you know a treatment plan so you have to you have to go back you have to take the time you have to kind of get the feeling of what kind of life that person has had what kind of life they're having now and so you don't so you know the neurobiology that you're dealing with so you're not treating the symptoms if it's something that can be fixed with therapy refer them to therapy as soon as possible create realistic expectations as to what to expect from the medications and what we're going to be able to accomplish with them so so the expectations are not too high and you know you do know that they come back and say oh i feel the same or i'm worse but the stressors are still there we're not going to be able to solve them so you have to create a balance which most of the times is kind of difficult to yes to accomplish so you would say that you aren't just like born with a disorder it just kind of happens and is triggered by an some event some people are born with a genetic predisposition some people acquire the 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 disorder throughout life depending on you know the stressors and the circumstances you know that they have gone through but most of them come with a genetic predisposition difficulties in life play a huge um, you know factor in what kind of disorder they develop and the you know the dimensions you know the the you know in terms of difficulty and severity also we recent studies have shown that some of the behavior that we experience some of the things that we experience are model behavior from our parents if you were raised (laughs) and you're smiling um, if you were raised by an anxious mom an anxious dad that sort of behavior you acquire because you grow up thinking that it's normal. You grow up thinking that it's it's part of, you know, who you're supposed to be. If you have a mom that is reactive um, to the situations in life, you become reactive. If you have a mom that stresses out about every single thing in life, you, you know, you grow up thinking that that's okay and it becomes part of you. Same thing if you have a happy father, a happy mom, you become a happy child. It's just environment plays a huge component in mental illness. Like for, at least in my case and a lot of my friends' case, we didn't really know much about mental health until we started experiencing the symptoms. Like for me, it was just one day I woke up, went to work, at work, had a panic attack. I didn't know what it was. I couldn't breathe. I was crying. And then it, from there, I didn't go to work for like four days because I just couldn't get out of bed. Mm-hmm. And then my mom took me to the doctor and he's like, go see a psychiatrist and sign up for the gym. I'm like, okay. But before, like my mom never talked to me about any mental health issues. Like none of my friends knew about mental health until we experienced a crisis. Well, you do know that in the Latin community, mental health, there's a huge stigma. And... That is a huge part of the problem. That is something that is not talked about. I mean, when, and you do know that for a fact, that patients come and said, oh, I had an uncle who was crazy. 
or I had an or had an aunt who committed suicide. We don't know what happened. Oh yeah, so my grandma, you know, she always took medications, but nobody ever took the time to get to the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. Were we dealing with schizophrenia? Were we dealing with bipolar disorder or simply depression and anxiety? Mm-hmm. It's just that they belong to a different generation that and also psychiatry was in its infancy. Right. So they were just controlling the symptoms. Um, how do we make these people feel better? The neurobiology component of it was never taken into account. So now is when we're putting all the pieces of the puzzle together and we're able to come up with better treatment plans, better medications. We can use imaging, we can use genetics to kind of to help the patient better. Panic attacks is, is also multifactorial. And panic attacks is your body's response to tell you telling you we're no longer able to protect you for the, to the level of anxiety that you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Before you have your first panic attack, your body has been through a great deal of anxiety. And obviously, you being young, uh, especially younger back then, so it took a great deal of time and arranged homeostasis in your body to prevent you from having a panic attack, but it gets to the point where the body is no longer able to protect you. So uh, basically bringing it to your awareness. Yeah, like, hey, you have like... You have to do something about <laughs> yeah. it because we're no longer able to prevent it. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> it's multifactorial. It can be caused by a medical illness. It can be caused by a stress. It can become, you know, it can be, be as a product of poor you know, um, sleep, um, you know, a stressful job. I mean, it, the possibilities are endless. However, it's just your body going through a, a level of stress in which no longer is able to protect you. So my next question was, like, what are some of the signs that someone should seek a psychiatrist? So the first thing that, uh, well, what are, when it comes to people come I, when they're already, like... Well, because the the stigma, obviously, and because obviously they don't want to be labeled that, you know, the most horrendous things are thought about the psychotropic medications that we use. Um, So when people tend to get more educated about, you know, the fact they they come quicker Um, or when they when mental illness is strong in their family and they know that they have a genetic predisposition. They want to know what they're dealing with. And if there is treatment, they want to get it as soon as possible because before it becomes worse. So depending on what we're dealing with, the, the key word is dysfunctionality. Dysfunctionality is what tells us exactly to, of, to what degree of severity we're dealing with. If the depression, the anxiety, the deregulation in mood is making you dysfunctional. Not every, and by that I mean not allowing you to function at a level that is acceptable, not getting out of bed, not being able to keep your hygiene, not being able to work, not being able to go to school. That has reached a level of dysfunctionality that definitely needs for you to seek help. Um, obviously, we know that people go on months and years um, feeling anxious and they don't do anything about it, feeling depressed and they don't do anything about it. And when they become dysfunctional, which is obviously it has reached a level when it's more difficult to treat and whatnot, um, 
you know, that's when they seek the help. So my advice would be if you're feeling anxious to the point that it's making you isolated, that it's not allowing you to enjoy your life, although you're still functional, get help, you know, seek help. Uh, we also get this a lot. They tell the primary care physician, the primary care physician gives them something that will not take care of the problem, or just make the symptoms better. And obviously when they come to us, advised by the primary care physician months later, and several benzodiazepines later, um, then they come and obviously the problem is worse. Also, we have to acknowledge that there are not many psychiatrists out there, and there is a huge, um, you know, crisis when it comes to having good, qualified psychiatrists out there that are, you know, available to help the community. So that is changing. Now there are more programs that are producing more psychiatrists, but obviously lack of, you know, a decent amount of professionals in the community play a, a huge part. Okay, and do you have any patients that have weaned off of medication and haven't had to, like, go back on medication? Um, well, I cannot think of any right now. <laughs> um, if we're dealing with an adjustment disorder, meaning if we're dealing with an obvious reason why the person became anxious or depressed, usually when that problem is solved, person, you know, the person can go back to the baseline and they just need some temporary help to deal with, you know, with the stressor or what they're dealing with. You do know that we have some of those patients that sometimes they stop medication and they just come back to chit-chat, right? Um, they benefit from, you know, just the interaction and the reassurance that the help was temporary and they're already feeling better, they're already, you know have gained the functionality that they needed in order to, you know, continue with their lives. But if these conditions go beyond a year, for the most part, they become chronic. It's the same thing as, you know, diabetes or hypertension or esophageal reflux. Sometimes we make changes and, you know, we lose weight, we eat right, we avoid certain foods, uh, and those things can get under control. But the damage is already there. Anything that changes, you know, what you try to reduce, meaning if you gain the gain, the, you know, the way back, and if you start eating sweets, you might go back to the same problem. The same thing happens with anxiety and depression. Because when they happen, your body has done a lot of things to protect you from it. So when it brings it to your awareness, when you acknowledge that there is a problem, your body has a struggle with it for, you know, for a while. Unless it's something, you know, like a sudden death of a loved one or, or, you know, like a car accident, something that changes your life in an instant. Sometimes with therapy alone, you know, you get your group back. But it's multifactorial. It changes from person to person. Okay. And then, I think you already answered this, but... Um like, what are some of the factors that you take into account when diagnosing a patient? Which Well, I think that you have to take your time. You have to ask the right questions. You have to do a thorough psychiatric evaluation. And you do know that I take my time. And beforehand, we tried, with your help, we tried to collect as much information as possible. So I think that one of the biggest problems 
in the community, in any community. It's that when the psychiatrists do not, they don't take the time to properly assess the patient and they don't ask enough questions to get to the right diagnosis. Um, as you know, I teach residents now, and I, you know, I, it's a mistake that I see every day that I spend with them. They want to do a quick assessment. They want to do a quick interview. And that, you know, the time that you take with the patient is extremely important because it's, it's, it, it is paramount that you get the right diagnosis to get the right medication on board. Some, we might mistake bipolar patients for anxious patients. That doesn't mean they don't have both. But if you put a patient in something that is going to decrease anxiety and you're dealing with restlessness caused by the Moses regulation, of course that patient is not going to get better. And then they're going to come back. The more that you miss, the, the more difficult it is for you to establish the trust with a patient. And, you know, it's, it's a... It's a thin line. So I take my time, I listen, I ask, I try to ask the right, the right questions so we get to the right diagnosis and the right treatment. Um, yeah. Um, closing statement. Um, I think psychiatry is growing. I think psychiatry has evolved a great deal. Um, I love what I do because we do get to help a lot of people, as yes. you know. Um, we need to be good listeners. We need to be very sensitive. We need to always put ourselves in people's shoes, um, never to judge anybody. And unconsciously, we do it all the time, obviously. Yeah. But we, it's, it's a mistake we, you know, because everybody's fighting a battle that we don't know anything about. And the fact that we're granted the privilege in getting in people's lives and allowing them to know their deepest fears and everything else is, is a privilege. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I encourage people not to be afraid to seek help um, because it, it, you know these things, for the most part, are manageable, are treatable, and getting help changes your life completely. Yeah. We do get people all the time that they wait until the uttermost last minute. And for some people, it can mean life and death. We do know that suicide is a problem. We hear all the time, especially recently. Yes. And we do know that a stigma has prevented people from getting the help that they need. And we do see it with the, you know, adolescent community that we see, you know, gender issues, depression, anxiety, sexual orientation. I mean, the, we can just go on and on and on, but the help is there. So don't be afraid to reach out and to speak up. It's very important. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I know that because we always very busy uh it has prevented us from doing it but we should do this more often we should keep the dialogue open and especially the questions that you're you know the people that listen to your podcast might have i think that we can do this regularly and answer questions and keep the communication open so we can help as many people as possible 
Okay, guys. Well, thank you for listening. If you have any questions that you want answered, you can email me at theupsizefm at gmail.com. And this will be the last episode of the year. I hope you guys had a wonderful year and I wish you the best in 2019. Bye.